Amen. Thank you, Pastor Jason. And uh, so this is the time in the service where we usually sing. And so we're changing it up a little bit tonight. Uh, Hayward is away and most of the praise band. Um, Pastor Scott is away. He will be back this Sunday. Hayward will be back this Sunday. The A-team is going to be back this Sunday. But meanwhile, I am uh, just grateful for the opportunity tonight to open the Word of God with you and... Um, share from it. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 100, if you would. So after I finish uh, preaching, we're going to have a time of worship, and we're going to sing a couple of songs. So we're just going to turn it around a little bit. But that will be in uh, response to what we share tonight together from this passage of Scripture. This psalm is only five verses. And yet it's filled with truth. It has seven commands in it. And I actually memorized this psalm when I was in grade school in a public school room. Wow, how things have changed. We would quote it every morning at the beginning of class as well as some other things, other scripture. And we would pray and we'd say the Pledge of Allegiance and those days are far gone. But that's where I first memorized um, this passage of scripture. The uh, superscription at the beginning of it says a psalm for thanksgiving. And this is the only psalm that has that particular transcription, superscription. This is also what we call an orphan psalm, only in the sense that we don't know who wrote it. And yet we know that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. We don't know who the human vessel was that he used to uh, write this psalm. It's known as a psalm of jubilee, which is Latin for, oh, be joyful. And just a reminder, all of these psalms are meant to be sung. They were sung uh, among God's people and uh, specifically sung accompanied by string instruments. So certainly this psalm is one that they uh, would sing together. So let me read Psalm 100. You can follow along. It says this, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your help tonight by your spirit. We pray that you would guide us into truth. Father, help us as we look to your word, um, that it would uh, impact us and change us as your word always does. Father, help me to be faithful to the text. We pray that um, we would not get outside the boundary of truth tonight because your word is true. So we ask for your blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a question. Why is music so important for believers? And the easy answer is, is because it's very important in Scripture. Uh, the Scripture has much to say about music, and we know that music is a creation of the Lord that we enjoy, that we benefit from. We are commanded over 140 times in Scripture to sing to the Lord. We are to sing. We are to be singers. So when we look at music in the scriptures, we know that the first musician that's recorded uh, in Genesis was Jubal. He was the first musician. We know that David was an excellent musician. The Bible tells us that he played this 10-string harp. Now, when you think of a harp, you know, you think of this concert instrument that's really tall and they sit on a bench and they play it like that. That is not at all what the harp was that David had. In fact, the harp that he played is very, very similar 
to our acoustic guitar. In fact, that's the instrument that's closest to what he played. But we know he played well because Saul would call for him when he was troubled in his spirit and ask for David to come and play his harp. And it would soothe him. It would settle him down. Now, that's how I know he played well, because if he was playing wrong notes and it didn't sound very good, it would trouble him even more. But it did soothe him. And so we believe he was excellent in what he did. So as we look through scripture, we see music occurring at different times. There are many events that took place that were accompanied with singing. The first one is actually at creation. So we go to the book of Job, chapter 38, and God is now answering Job and his friends. And he says this, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since you know, or who stretched the line on it? Or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And these are heavenly beings. These are angels that is recorded at creation. They broke out into song, song of praise to the Lord. Another time we see music occurring after a big event was when Moses led the children of Israel across the Red Sea on dry ground. And then, as you remember, as they got across, the waters came and drowned the entire Egyptian army. And uh, there was a great victory that day. So when they got to the other bank, to the other side, what did they do? Well, let's read from Exodus 15. Listen to what happened. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said. Now, it's interesting to me there that the word translated is said when it just described it as singing. And what I want us to see is this word said speaks of telling or uh, proclaiming, and it could be spoken, it could be singing. So uh, in this case, we know that it is singing because the Bible tells us that. So here's the song that they sang. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will extol him. Another event was at the birth of Jesus. And we read about that in Luke chapter 2. And it says this, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, and there's that word again, saying, which means it could be spoken, it could have been singing. I like to think it was singing, but we don't know that for sure. But it could be. And they were saying or singing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now that had to be a shock that night to those shepherds because they were just out in a dark field like they were every night, not expecting anything significant to happen. And all of a sudden, the sky is filled with angels and they are either shouting or singing. Uh, glory to God in the highest. Interesting that um, in Ephesians chapter 5, a very familiar passage, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So that speaking there is definitely referring to singing. And it goes on to say, in making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Another occasion is in the upper room right before the crucifixion on that Thursday night. And Jesus met with his disciples they shared a meal together, and Jesus had some very important things he wanted to tell his disciples. And um, 
when he finished doing that, the Bible says, it says this, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So apparently Jesus actually led the disciples in singing a hymn before they left the upper room. Now there's one event that did not have any singing. And that was because the nation of Israel had been brought into captivity by Babylon. And um, in Psalm 37, it says this, By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Upon the willows in the midst of it we hung our harps. For there our captors demanded of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. They responded, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So apparently these songs that God's people would sing were notorious and were well known and they wanted to hear those songs. And yet they responded, how can we sing when we're in captivity? So God has given us the gift of music. It's an incredible gift. Um, could you imagine a world that didn't have music in it? Imagine going to a dramatic movie and there's no music. Going to a football game and there's no band. Even worse, coming to church and having no music. And yet God has given us the gift of music. And musical instruments are a blessing. They're in scripture. It's good to use them. But I'm confident that the greatest musical instrument is the human voice. Singing. And you know what's so good about that is we all have one. And uh, we don't have to bring it in a case. It's with us all the time. In fact, it's actually part of us as part of who we are. And one of the reasons I think that the human voice is the greatest instrument of all is because it carries lyric. It expresses praise with words as well as uh, music. So something very special happens when we sing, especially when we sing praise. Now, this instrument that God has given is uh, amazing to study and understand how it all works together. But the fact is, I believe anybody that works in any vocation or studies a vocation that ends in ology, they should be a worshiper of God. Because as they understand what God has made, it's intricate, it's amazing, it sustains, God sustains it. So, for example... Let's think about anatomy. So think about the eye for a minute, just the eye. There's people, that's all they do is study and work with the eye. Um, in Psalm 139, the Bible tells us that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, that the Lord knit us together. Um, he created us. And... Um, so the eye, if you think of it, now there's two of them, and yet they are synced together in perfect unison. The pupil can open and close based on how much light there is and how much light needs to be let in. Amazing. Embedded in the retina are millions of light-sensitive cells, which come in two main Varieties, rods and cones. And that doesn't even scratch the surface of just the human eye. The, the small blood vessels that are there. and The way the eye can give moisture when it needs to. And we go on and on about the eye. That's God's creation. I was thinking today about just the joints in a single finger. Every finger has three joints. And they all work together. And we can control them. And then on the tip of the finger, we have fingernails. Um, they're the same shape as the end of the finger, 
they're hard, so they protect the finger. And um, again, just an amazing thing that God created. Think about the heart. The heart pumps and delivers blood and oxygen to every part of the body. And yet, this heart will pump every second or so for 60, 70, 80, or more years. Amazing. We can't build machinery like that. And yet, God created us with an amazing heart. And we could go on to other um, ologies, like astronomy. Somebody that studies the planets and the stars and all that's in the universe, how could they not worship God? Because everything, millions of stars, billions of stars, I don't know how many, um, of stars and planets and suns and solar systems, and yet there's order in the universe. And the reason is, is because the creator is also the sustainer. And he created it with great order. The Bible says the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. What about botany? The study of plants and this whole process of photosynthesis. How does that happen? I remember learning about that in school and it was just amazing that sunlight and then the oxygen and the carbon dioxide and the cycle that takes place. God set all that up. That's all part of his creation. Um, what an amazing creator we have that we worship. But think about this for a minute. God has given every one of us an instrument, a voice. And we can use that voice for good or for evil. And yet God desires that we use it for his glory. It's part of our body. In, in Romans 12, 1, it says this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So this amazing creation, it starts with, sometimes we call it a vocal cord. It's really more vocal folds. And your vocal folds are about that long, maybe an inch. And God has given us the ability to breathe and allow breath to go over that, what we call it actually the vocalis muscle, and it causes it to vibrate. And depending on how much tension is on the vocalis, tells how high or low the pitch is. So the tighter the tension is, the faster the vibration, the higher the pitch. The less tension on it, the less number of vibrations per second, and the lower the pitch. Between middle C and middle C sharp, for those who don't know what that is, two notes right next to each other on the piano, there's at least 100 pitches between those two. We call them scents. That's an amazing thing that pitch can be discerned to that degree. And so how do we, when we sing, know how much tension to put on our vocalis muscle to get the pitch we want to sing? To make it even more complicated, there are no nerve endings there. Well, God has uniquely created our hearing so that it connects with the vocal mechanism so that we can pre-hear a pitch and produce it accurately. We don't have to understand how it works. We, have, we don't have to have any training to use it. God has put it within us that way for his glory. So he commands us to sing and then he gives us the ability to do it. He tells us to preach the word. Well, we need a voice to do that. He's provided it. There's verses like, speak the truth in love. He's given us the means to do that. But if that isn't enough, he's given us this respiratory system 
that we, our diaphragm, which is a membrane that lowers and allows the lungs to open and receive a full tank of air. And then when we exhale, that air goes over the vocalis muscles and produces vibration. Um, there's a whole system of muscles and things that change to change the tension. Our cricothyroids actually have a rocking motion and it can tighten or loosen how much tension is on the vocal folds. So in that sense, really our voice is an, a wind instrument. It's powered by breath. I can't help but think of uh, Psalm 150 where it says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And so we use our breath to do that. But if that wasn't enough, then we have these what we call articulators, the tongue, the teeth, the jaw, the lips, which allows us to formulate words. So we can actually sing with pitch and sing words with meaning as we do that. God has done all of that. So all these times we're instructed to sing. Believers are singers. When a person comes to Christ, if they're not already, they will become a singer. Now, your voice doesn't change at all, but your heart changes and your desires change. And there's something I believe within every true believer that desires to express praise to the Lord through singing. Listen to some of these passages that, that speak to us about singing. Psalm 98, starting in verse 4. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. L-Y-R-E. That's a musical instrument. With the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn. Shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Psalm 92 starting in verse 1. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness by night. With the ten-string lute and with the harp, with resounding music upon the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by what you have done. I will sing for joy at the work of your hands. Just a couple more. Psalm 17, verse 17. I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 46. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. I think there's a point here. We are to sing praises to the Lord. But it tells why we're to sing praises. And in this case, it says this, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. Psalm 57. My heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake my glory. Awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. So we are to sing, but not just any song. Our song is to be praise to God. We're to sing praises to Him. Psalm 66, starting in verse 2, says, Sing the glory of His name. Make His praise glorious. Say to God, notice that say there, and we're talking about singing again, How awesome are your works! Because of the greatness of your power, your enemies will give feigned obedience to you. All the earth will worship you and will sing praises to you, and they will sing praises to your name.
One of the things you notice in these passages, it talks about joyful singing. It is not a chore to sing. We do it with great joy because of what the Lord has done. So I'm convinced that the true demeanor of a believer who is singing praise to God is that of joyfulness. That is our basic demeanor. Um, we should come in here with great joy in our hearts. And even if there's a burden, the Bible speaks of that, about joy in, in uh, trials. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a minute. Even in repentance, if there's sin that needs to be dealt with and you confess it and repent of it, there is great joy in repentance. God allows us to repent. He grants us repentance, which brings joy. So in verse 2, we're invited to come. It says, come before him with joyful singing. And as I read that invitation to come and sing, I can't help but think of another invitation in the New Testament where it says that we are to come boldly to the throne of grace. We are invited to come in the presence of the Lord with great boldness. Because you remember in the Old Testament, and this is speaking about the temple here, about the gates, into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. But no one could go into the most holy place except for the selected priest once a year would go in and make atonement for the sins of the people. Well, you remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was on the cross and he said, it is finished. The work of redemption was complete. He had satisfied the demands and wrath of God. And the Bible says that the veil of the temple was torn in half from top to bottom. And that was the dividing curtain. No one could go past that curtain and go into what was the presence of the Lord. And yet, the curtain's been torn. And it says in verse 16 of Hebrews 4, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then it goes on in verse 2, and it says this, Serve the Lord with gladness. That's for every believer. We are to serve the Lord with gladness. So serving is not something that the natural man really looks forward to doing. Many times it's not really a goal. It seems maybe beneath them or menial. And yet in God's economy, it's a great thing to be a servant. It's to be pursued being a servant. And yet... God tells us that we need to serve joyfully. He says, the greatest among you is to be a servant. The Apostle Paul refers to himself joyfully as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He held that with great honor. He embraced it. And even the Lord Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. So we see some servants in the Bible. I think of one in particular who served, but didn't serve joyfully. And you remember Martha. She was just mad while she was serving because her sister wasn't doing it as well. Well, sometimes there's nothing more miserable than somebody who is serving and hating every minute of it. And if you just ask them, they'll tell you about it. And they want to know why so-and-so isn't serving like I am. And they want to make sure somebody sees them serving so they can get the credit. That is not what it's talking about here. It's talking about joyfully serving the Lord, serving the Lord with gladness. Serving the Lord is not a chore. It's a privilege for believers. So if you find yourself serving without joy, and I think we've probably all been there at some time in our life, we need to remind ourselves to rejoice in the Lord. And in that passage it says, and again I say rejoice. And then even in the midst of trials, 
The Bible says we are to be joyful. We are to have joy. In uh, James chapter 1, it says this, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there should be great joy in singing. There should be great joy in serving. I believe when we come together here on Sunday mornings as the church, as the people of God, those who have been redeemed, those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light, those of us who were at one time without hope have great hope, and that hope is eternal hope, there should be great joyful singing in the place. I believe this should be the happiest place on earth. Now, I know somebody else uses that slogan, but I've been there, and I've seen it, and I've seen babies crying in their strollers because they've been pushed around in the heat for eight hours, but you've got to get everything in because you spent so much money, you've got to get your money's worth. I've seen couples fighting over what they want to do next. That is not the happiest place on earth. This should be the happiest place on earth. A true servant is someone who is humble. We serve the Lord in humility. It's our privilege to serve the Lord. And if somebody, somebody is serving with pride, they're serving themselves and not the Lord. It's a privilege to serve the Lord. As believers, joyfully serving is part of the instinct of our new nature. It's natural for the true believer that's walking with Christ to serve joyfully. So, as you consider, God put in the nature of birds to fly. They do it effortlessly. They do it easily. They do it naturally. God put in the nature of fish to swim. And again, they swim naturally. They don't need training. They just do it. God instinctively put that within their nature. But if you ask a fish to fly, he won't be able to. It's not in his nature. He's not equipped to fly. If you ask a bird to swim, he won't be able to. It's not in his nature. He's not equipped to. But when a believer is asked, to joyfully serve, it comes naturally. It's part of our nature. We've been equipped to do just that. And the Bible teaches as we serve, we have to be careful because we cannot serve two masters. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, it says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. So in summary, we are to sing, we are to serve. But not, not just sing, we're to sing praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And not just serve, but to serve the Lord with gladness. And that brings us to verse 3. It says this, Know that the Lord himself is God, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And notice the very first word in that verse is know. We're to know our God. We study the Bible. We study about his attributes, his perfections, what he's like. And the more we know him, the more we're going to love him. The more we know him, the more we're going to delight in him. The Bible tells us to delight ourselves in the Lord. The more we know him, the more we will serve him. The more we will worship him. Paul expressed his desire to know the Lord better. In Philippians chapter 3, he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings 
being conformed to his death. So it's not just knowing about God. It's knowing him, a personal relationship of walking with the Lord. So we worship the Lord because he's creator. We are so, obviously the creation is subservient to its creator. And he is the one who spoke everything into being. That's amazing to me. He said, let there be light, and there was light. And he was teaching us even in his creation. Because the Bible says that after six days of labor, that on the seventh day, he rested. He didn't rest because he was tired. He rested because he was teaching us about the principle of Sabbath. And ultimately, that speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. We find our rest in him. He didn't need six days to create everything. He's all-powerful. He could have spoken it, and everything would have been created at once. Um, he was teaching us once again. The Bible shows us that even his creation is obedient to him and worships him. The Bible talks about the trees of the field clap their hands in praise to the Lord. The Bible talks about rocks rising up and praising him. But they do not do it with intelligence. They just do it with obedience. We are allowed to joyfully do it with intelligence and understanding. So we're reminded that all these things were created by him and for him. And then it talks about that we are the sheep of his pasture. A shepherd owns and protects and leads and feeds his sheep. He cares for his sheep. And our Lord does that. He is the great shepherd. You remember Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Psalm 79, starting in verse 13. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture will give thanks to you forever. To all generations, we will tell of your praise. In Psalm 95, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So he created us and we belong to him. But also, for those of us who are believers, he made us new creations in Christ. And it's he that made us and not we ourselves. It was not synergistic. It wasn't God with us helping. It was monergistic. It was God alone who saved us and brought us into a right relationship with Christ. The Bible teaches that he set his affections on us from the foundation of the world. And then he paid the price of redemption through his son on the cross. And what a high price that was with his own blood. And we will never stop praising him for his redeeming love. We will do it through all of this life and will do it throughout all of eternity. We'll be praising him for his redeeming love. There's a hymn that Wesley wrote centuries ago, but I love this hymn, but it speaks about this, the, the redeeming love of Christ. You may recognize it. The lyrics go like this. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? And then my favorite stanza. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And then the final stanza. No condemnation now I dread. 
Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. We will be a grateful people, praising God throughout all of eternity. And then the final two verses, verses 4 and 5. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And his faithfulness endures to all generations. So as we sing, we sing truth. We sing biblical lyrics. We have to be careful that what we sing is right and proper because there's a lot of, quote, Christian songs out there that do not. And that's why we give great attention before we ever put a lyric up on the screen so that we are confident that we're singing truth. Sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes we'll not do a song, even though it's a great song, but there's one line in it we just can't do. Sometimes we'll re rewrite that one line of the lyric to make it uh, truth. But we love to sing truth. If we have faulty theology, we'll have faulty worship. And you remember the, the account of Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron. And the Bible says that they offered false fire to the Lord. They were priests. And we don't know exactly what that was, but it was not according to the will of the Lord. And the Lord struck them down, struck them dead because of that sin. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, you worship what you do not know. So her worship was faulty. She was talking about this mountain or that mountain, and she was all messed up. But that's because her theology was messed up. Um, she didn't have a right understanding of the Lord and of um, the gospel and of um, salvation. Thanksgiving is a natural expression for the believer. And the fact is, we should always have thanksgiving in our heart. We certainly have much to be grateful for. And if you ever sit down and just think of all the things you have to be grateful for, you must offer thanksgiving to the Lord. We continually remember his blessings. And expressions of thanksgiving is part of our worship. Thanksgiving and praise are very closely related. I'm not sure exactly when it might transition from one to the other. I think it's all just kind of together maybe. So in Psalm 92 it says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High. And so we go to verse 4 there and it begins with thanksgiving. It's a starting place. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it tells us, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we're to enter his courts with praise as well. And we praise the Lord because of who he is and what he has done. We praise the Lord because he is great. The Bible says great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. So I believe the greater we see God, the greater our praise will be. If we see God in a small way, our worship will be small. But if we see God in a great way, our worship will be great. So it's interesting, the book of Psalms is actually the songbook in the Old Testament. These psalms were sung, and it's full of praise. It's also full of doctrine. Sometimes we think of it because it's poetry, that it must be about flowers and butterflies and things like that. No, it is a strong doctrinal book. In fact, every major doctrine is, can be found in the book of Psalms, at least in seed form. 
But the, the book of Psalms is laid out in such a way that there's actually five books within the book of Psalms. So book one is chapter one through 41. But it's interesting that every one of these books end with a doxology. A doxology is a strong expression of praise. Uh, you can think of it as an explosion of praise to the Lord. So when we get to the end of chapter 41, it ends with this doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And then book two ends after Psalm 72 and ends with this doxology. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Book three ends after Psalm 89 with this doxology. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Book four ends after Psalm 106 with this doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. And then the fifth book and the entire book of Psalms ends with Psalm 150, which is one great doxology to end the Psalter with. And it says this, Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And, and then we're instructed to bless his name. And that speaks of bending the knee in adoration for all that he has revealed about himself to us through his word. That we can bless the Lord. Uh, Psalm 103 um, speaks about blessing the Lord. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And then there's three reasons given here in the last verse as to why we're to praise the Lord. He is good, he is merciful, and he is faithful and true. God is good in everything he does. We do not evaluate how good God is based on human standards. God is the standard. He is good. All goodness is measured by him and his standard. He is good. Listen to a couple of passages that speak about God being good. Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 86. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. And then it says that his mercies endure forever. They are just as eternal as God himself is eternal. We know that God is immutable. He does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Aren't you glad he doesn't change? He's not like us. He's not moody like we are sometimes. And so we praise the Lord for his mercies. And the Bible tells us that his mercies are new every day. Every morning his mercies are new. So our praise should be new every morning as we praise him for his mercies. Great is his faithfulness. And then he is faithful 
and true. His faithfulness, His truth endures to all generations. Because the Lord Jesus is the truth. He said that, didn't He, in John. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And yet in um, John 17, in the priestly prayer, Jesus is praying for us. And he says this, sanctify them, speaking of believers, by your truth, your word is truth. So the word of God is the written word that points to the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this written word, the Bible says, will never pass away. The Bible says heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away. So a psalm of praise, a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of joyfully serving. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for this time together in your word. Father, may we be joyful worshipers. May we serve you with joy in our hearts. Father, may we count it a joy to be a servant and to love you. And so, Father, help us to grow and mature in our understanding of who you are and what your perfections are like. And the more that we see and know you, Father, the more and the greater we're able to worship you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.